With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. If we're grown-ups, we need to be able to talk about these things. We have to care about what is actually true. We owe it to ourselves to care about our own contradictions, and we owe it to others, those with whom we're arguing, to continue to point out their internal contradictions. I mean, this is, this is actually the most compelling sort of criticism of another person's view. It's one thing to say, I mean, if we're arguing about, you know, religion or, or climate change or whatever it is, if I'm pointing to facts over there that you don't acknowledge, right, it's a very weak argument. I, I can't make a lot of headway with you. But if I can show you the way in which your own assumptions are in conflict with themselves, Right. That you actually can't functionally believe what you say you believe, you know, everything at the same time, right? I mean, you could believe one thing on Monday and another thing on Tuesday, but if you try to get the Monday truths and the Tuesday truths to cohere, you're actually in contradiction with yourself. That's a much more powerful rebuttal to you. And we, we have to... But that's where people have the bias, though. They just won't admit it. So there's ways, I think, when you kind of isolate these cognitive biases and how it affects you, there's ways to overcome them a little bit. Right. So what I'm curious is, do you think, you know, A, it's clear we have all these cognitive biases. B, most people will probably deny it in most cases. But C, do you think there's ways to overcome a lot of these biases? How can they be healthy for us going forward? How can we use knowledge of these biases going forward to improve our lives? So I am so happy to be here with Sam Harris. I've been a fan for a long time. He he was on the podcast five years ago after his book Waking Up came out, but he's written books like The End of Faith, The Moral Landscape, Lying, Free Will, Waking Up. We're going to talk probably a little bit about all of them. And most recently, his his app, uh, Waking Up, we'll be talking about that. And his podcast, which used to be called Waking Up, what's what's the name of it now? Making Sense. Making yeah, sense. Why did you brand, change the name? There was some brand confusion there around. So I, so I wrote this book, Waking Up, and then I, I honestly cannot remember why I titled my podcast Waking Up. But like I, I was just a, a man who ran out of titles apparently, so I just poached it from the book. But the book was fairly narrowly focused on meditation and the nature of consciousness and how we can understand spiritual experience in a scientific context, uh, which is maybe, you know. 5% of the subject matter that I deal with in my podcast. So it was always the wrong name for the podcast. 
it turns out it is the right name for the meditation app that I wanted to release, but I, I just I couldn't have them titled the same way. It was just too confusing. So I I rebranded the podcast as Making Sense, which is actually actually makes more sense for what, the topics I touch. And and uh, there's so many different things that I want to talk about with you, uh, you know, ranging from the topics in your books uh, to all sorts of ways the world could end, which I feel like is not necessarily a theme of yours, but comes mm -hmm. up quite a bit yeah. in from your TED talks to your, what did you do last night? Uh, so, so last night I did a, a, a live podcast, a live event with uh, Danny Kahneman at the Beacon, which uh, was fun. I had never done an event with Danny before. And uh, as many viewers, listeners may know, he wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's one of the, the fathers of behavioral economics, prospect theory before that. He's a, arguably the most influential psychologist alive at the moment. And he, and he, he basically kind of named and did the research finding all these, you know, what we call cognitive biases, all these yeah. things that influence our behaviors without us realizing it. Yeah, along with his colleague Amos Tversky, you know, who died um, maybe, actually I forgot when he died, at least around 10 years ago or so. Um, and so the two of them, I mean, uh, Tversky certainly deserved the Nobel, you know, had he lived, Nobel's not given to, to posthumously. So, uh, but Danny, uh, won the Nobel for, for, in economics for the work he and, and Amos did. So, so, uh, you know, one, one thing that always comes, so you were talking to Daniel Kahneman last night. One of the things that I always think about with his working with cognitive biases is that, and I, I'm sure you probably touched upon this in your talk with him, is that. For better or for worse, we think we have free will. We think we make our decisions. We think that these decisions are informed by rational behavior. Uh, that you know, because we all think we're 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 smart enough to make our own decisions. And yet, what they show with these cognitive biases is that there are so many other factors that are kind of primal that influence our decisions and and the behaviors we make. Like. What percentage of our behavior would you say is based on actual rational thinking as opposed to kind of external influences and cognitive biases and so on? Did this come well, up in the conversation? Yeah, well, we didn't, not framed in that way. And I don't know if anyone could, could give you a clear answer to that question. I mean, certainly most of what we do and think and feel is not the result of a, what you, what you would call a, a, a rational top-down executive appraisal of what's going on. I mean, all this stuff is, is being pushed into consciousness from below. And much of our reasoning is a kind of post hoc uh, rebranding of the the origins of all of this. So you, you have a reaction to somebody, right, that is based on something that you didn't author and and really can't control, right? You you have a you, you have a good feeling or a bad feeling about them. Uh, and then if someone asks you, well, how did you feel about that person? You very quickly generate a story which seems to, which advertises it itself as the reasons why you feel this way, and it sounds good. And so you and you you reason in a kind of post hoc way uh, and give yourself an explanatory story for why you feel the way you feel. And we know from you know a vast number of psychological experiments that the story you tell yourself is is very often very often bears no relationship to the reason why you came to feel the way you felt uh, and even if it is accurate the the 
conscious story level is not actually the reason, right? I mean, you can you can retrospectively give some plausible account of how you came to judge something a certain way, but the story is uh, again largely just the way you're d- doing some internal record keeping. I mean, this is this is this, this is this narrative of your life that you're telling telling yourself, and it is the the thing you can then export to the minds of others, right? You can give people reasons and we trade in these reasons all the time. And when they're, when they're plausible, the, these, these conversations work well. When, they, when they're not, you begin to feel that you're in the presence of someone who's either not being honest or is self-deceived or you know, your, their utterances aren't tracking what can seem plausible. But much of our reasoning with one another is not, is a kind of advocacy both internally and externally to justify what we, where we arrived by some other process. I mean, it seems like like a a great. It's it, I don't really like it when all of these all of these theories come out of just scientific research because then it feels a little too abstract. Like, yes, right. I'm sure there's scientific studies that show uh, people do this because of this or whatever. But one thing I see a lot in entrepreneurship is usually the entrepreneur that, who starts a company believes a lot more in his company or her company than everybody else. So I, so right. this is like an investment bias or sunken cost bias. They've invested time and energy, so they're not willing to admit that maybe their idea, their entrepreneurial idea is not the next Google or Tesla or whatever. Right. And it's almost like everybody's afraid to tell them, ah, your idea is not so good, but they're, they're convinced this is the best idea on the planet ever. And so you see, you see biases like that all the time where people are justifying, you know, behavior just because they've put time into it. So yeah. it must be good. Yeah. Or, or like college is a great example. If somebody spends four years in college and you tell them, ah, you know, college wasn't really such a great thing. Um, they're going to be like, no, it's the best thing you could possibly do with your life. Cause it's such a huge investment in time and money. And so you see examples like that all the yeah. time. Yeah. And, and it's hard to get to uh, some metric there where you you can know whether you're right or wrong conclusively but and and there's also a self-fulfilling aspect to this so confidence works up to a point right i mean you, it can actually increase the, the odds that you'll succeed even if it's in part you know drawing some of its energy from self-deception or delusion so it's not that i mean that, that you you can you can easily tell a story of, of why uh, uh, an optimism bias or a kind of a my side bias is a good strategy it, you, know, it, you know more often than not and that when we would have been selected to to have it and and it's you know uh, I, I think this research has, has stood the test of time uh, when you ask people to give a self appraisal uh, of how they they're affecting other people so you bring someone into a room of you know 20 strangers and you have them give a five-minute presentation, or you just have him, her, or her introduce themselves around, and then you ask them, you know, what sort of impression did you make on all these people? Uh, it depressed people are the most accurate, right? That a normal, you know, psychologically healthy and happy person uh, is uh, reliably self-deceived with respect to, in the positive direction. They they think they made a better impression than they, than they did. Now you can see this. Either way, either that's adaptive. Either you know, it's it's you know, our our, our self esteem and our good mood and our well being is to some degree propped up by self deception that is necessary, or 
you know, there's you know, there's other ways to interpret it. I mean, depressed people could be, uh, it could be self fulfilling. I mean, it's like they're they're actually they know that their their depression is sort of guaranteeing a an effect on others that is is easier for them to to gauge. Well, know, it's, so. it's probably both. Like, I mean, we're 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 doing this podcast, for instance, in a in a comedy club. So comedians, they often the way they learn is by going on stage and then looking at the video of themselves on stage yep. so they could see objectively because of because of because of this very effect they think they did well but then when right. they look at the video afterwards they're like oh that was horrible and then they can actually see objectively how they did or at least yeah, a little right. bit more objectively they can have a another perspective however still subjective on their performance i mean it's like the one thing it's interesting how we've all changed on this front because i remember the day where just hearing your voice on an answering machine gave gave the uh, this kind of uncanny feeling of women that doesn't sound like my voice right now I mean, now we're so used to seeing ourselves and hearing ourselves that i don't think anyone ever has that experience ever i mean or, or they're four years old when they first have it but yeah it gives you a, a sense of how others see you or may see you from the outside i mean it's not it's not truly objective but it's it's something you can't see from you know just being in your own head. But then that's also why a lot of people in, in many fields, and this is part of kind of Anders Ericsson's deliberate deliberate practice, where you do ten thousand hours of deliberate practice to achieve kind of mm -hmm. your your potential in any field. It's not only you take the video, but you have a mentor or a teacher who then also objectively analyzes it for you because you're not because you are biased to think you did better yeah. than you did. So there's ways I think when they when, when you kind of isolate these cognitive biases and how it affects you, there's ways to overcome them a little bit. So it takes 10,000 hours instead of one hour. Right. So, yeah. so you know, uh, what I'm curious is if do you think, you know, A, it's clear we have all these cognitive biases. B, most people will probably deny it in most cases. But C, do you think there's ways to overcome a lot of these biases and how can they... How can they be healthy for us going forward? How can we use knowledge of these biases to go going forward to to improve our lives? Well, it was interesting to talk to Danny last night because, as you say, Danny is the the father of much of this literature, and he's very pe pessimistic with respect to how much you can improve just your your rationality or your um, your navigation of of what is at bottom the a kind of structure to your ignorance and and uh, and and your unconscious mind. And what's happening? What bias is is um, it's something more than than error. It's it's a reliable form of error. The errors are moving in one direction, and uh, so this this part of your mentality uh, and culture. I mean, our collective mentality that we can't see, that we can't always inspect, the the, the code we can't you know easily rewrite has a structure which is producing reliable errors, right? So this is, you know, normal error is the sort of thing that can wash out collectively. So, you know, the, the expectation that a market can't be wrong or that a whole society can't be wrong is only valid when everyone's errors are uncorrelated, right? But here we're talking about correlated error. We're talking about biases that we all share where we're going to be reliably wrong in one direction or another. And... I think there are many of these. Um, I think the first, I think I mean, Danny would admit that you can become better at anticipating those situations 
where you're liable to be misled, where your intuitions are liable to be wrong. And, um, you know, from, you know, my experience in meditation, you know, I would say that another piece here is you can be more and more aware of your emotional life and the way, and, and your attachment to certain things being true. I mean, so a very reliable source of bias is just you're wanting things to be a certain way. I mean, just wishful thinking is this sort of overarching uh, property of a, a mind that's actually, in those moments, not making valid contact with reality because you're, you're, you're con- continually gaming uh, or attempting to game realities to deliver the message that you are going to find consoling. I want, you know, I, I don't want to see the evidence of this thing that will disappoint me. Right, so, and, and, it, and it's so important to address that because wishful thinking is often accompanied by disappointment when you don't get what you want. If you if you write a book and it doesn't make it, and your 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 happiness is linked to it getting to the bestseller list and it doesn't right. get there, you're disappointed. And so kind of being aware of that bias could improve your life. Yeah, well, and so, I mean, there's, there's disappointment, but there's also, um, it's just the more you can be aware of your changes of state moment to moment, the, 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 these these micro disappointments or the, you know, the the hope and fear that is constantly you know percolating beneath the surface, uh, which which if you're not really vigilant, you won't know you're feeling hope and fear in each moment, right? It's like like if you're not, many of us or most of us certainly live with this with a kind of an ambient level of anxiety. And and we're very high level. Anxiety. Yeah, yeah, but like like, but it's, but you know, there are people who know they have a problem with anxiety. There are people who would could honestly say, no, no, I'm not an anxious person. I'm fine. But the you can be kind of you can become a connoisseur of your own neurosis and your own you know seeking happiness. And and meditation really is the tool whereby you would do that. And, you know, you just become more observant of of why it is you you do things. Why did I say that thing? Which I mean, there's just there's some kind of stark examples of this. Like, we all know that uh, name dropping and you know telling telling stories in ways that seem to you know, you know, the whole purpose, the whole the very structure and intent of the whole utterance is to shine a favorable light on oneself. Right? We know how that plays when other people. Do it right, like when you see somebody who's name dropping a lot and they're and they're and they're telling self-aggrandizing stories. It almost never gives a positive sense of who that person is, right? Like you're you're just you, it's it looks bad to you whenever anyone else does it, and yet almost everyone is tempted to do it themselves. Like we can't do that the most basic piece of arithmetic where we see this thing advertised. On everyone else, and it looks to, like if you had a, if you were wearing a sweater that I thought looked terrible on you, and then your friend puts it on, and it looks terrible on him too, and then I go into a store and buy that same sweater, right? It's like it, it's it's completely delusional, and yet there are many uh, cognitive failures like this where we we just don't uh, we don't do the math, right? And the more you can become aware of your actual intentions, like the, the thing I'm about to do, or that I just did five seconds ago. You know, while I'm selling it both to myself and to somebody else as an expression of my concern, you know, or my altruism or my, you know, my intellectual honesty or whatever, it, it was actually motivated by 
my fear of how I was being perceived or my, you know, um, you know, uh, my selfishness. I wanted something that I was, it wasn't acknowledging. It was subtext. It wasn't text in the conversation. I mean, these are humbling insights that you can have more of. And, you know, the, the goal there is not to just become more depressed and cynical about, you know, what a mediocre person you are is to actually then be able to navigate a little better through this space so that you become more of the person you want to be. I mean, what I, what I would hope to be as a person is to to shrink the distance between what I what is in fact true of me and what I hope people think is true of me. I like so like that's and when that distance is is wide, you know, then you're then you're a hypocrite. I mean, then you're living a life of stark hypocrisy. And when the, and if you can narrow it enough, you you know that's the that's the the effort of an examined life that is that is increasing honesty and and self awareness and 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 really an ethical code. Right. So you bring up you bring up a great example in like I think it was the third hour of your recent podcast with Joe Rogan mm-hmm. where you talk about anger and you know all the time. I can say about me, I think about, oh, this person did me wrong. This person did me wrong. And you, you can't help but have these things worrying around in your, in your head. And a lot of it might be due to some biases, who knows, but your point is about meditation is that kind of identifying, you know, almost putting uh, arm's length distance, like, okay, I'm angry. This is why I might be angry. It might not be what I originally thought. It might be that there's other things going on in my past or, my relationship with this person that could be making me making me angry, like really kind of analyzing it from this meditative point of view might help you at least in that situation, overcome whatever cognitive biases made you angry in the first place. And I'm wondering why Kahneman doesn't quite see that there is some hope from your perspective, does Kahneman see that there's some hope in practicing overcoming these biases? Uh, not much hope. Yeah, man, I put that question to him fairly directly and, and yeah because so you know he, this is his life's work he spent a lot of time thinking about justice so he's got sunken cost bias yeah, no but but he no but his he doesn't think he has improved his intuitions really at all you know i, I think again i think he would admit that he's more vigilant for those situations where he's likely to make errors but he makes the same errors and he's uh uh he doesn't trust his. He he has a. It seems that he has an additional piece uh, of code that has come online, which is I should be aware that there's a high likelihood of error. You know, in a, in, a, in every circumstance, but in these particular cir- circumstances, most of all, right? So, and most of us don't have that chip installed, right? Most of us are just using our states of confidence and doubt as the the, the signature of valid cognition, right? So I feel my feeling of certainty is the thing that is reporting back to me validly the closeness of fit between my beliefs and the world, right? So I'm, I've got a map and, we, and, the, and the world is out there and my feeling of, my feeling good while looking at the map is 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 reporting to me that the map is in fact accurate, right? That's the way most of us are trying to navigate. And the problem is those feelings, the feelings of confidence, the feelings that you're right, the the, the the sense you get that you know the thing you just said has the ring of truth, 
we know that can break apart from valid cognition totally. I mean, you can be completely delusional, and and it feel you feel and you feel just as sure about the validity of your beliefs. Well, well, look at I mean the the giant social experiment of <clears throat> social media. You have half the world believing strongly in one thing, and the other half of the world believing so strongly in the opposite that they hate. <laughs> Their their yeah. neighbors who who are on the other side, it's, and everybody feels so strongly about these things. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the algorithms behind the newsfeed we all look down on on Facebook or Twitter or whatever is <clears throat> motivated by these cognitive biases. So we'll be more likely to follow someone who has a lot of followers, and that person might be in a group that you then want to belong to, and then you start liking all the posts of the people in that group, whether they're real or not. So those, you know, there's a lot of suggestions that these, this social media is influenced by people or bad actors or, or, or countries that want to influence opinion. And it's, it's all related to these cognitive biases and how they interact with social media. Yeah. And I think we have a responsibility to uh, be vigilant in ourselves and among our friends for all of the, 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 the moves we make that, that are enshrining this toxicity in our lives because it's completely destroying our ability to make sense to one another journalistically and to, to cohere politically. And so, I mean, what, you know, one thing that just came to mind uh, as you were describing that is I noticed that people hold their enemies to a different standard than they hold their friends to, right? It's like you, you, like you, you notice errors of reasoning in, in places where you are pretty sure you disagree with the conclusions. I mean, if you don't like the way that the math is ad- adding up on the other side of the aisle politically, you are very scrupulous in, in pointing out anything illogical or you know, errors of fact. Or, but on your side... People tend to just—they—they they know how they want the math to come out, right? They know what the conclusion should be, and then they're willing to forgive, you know, just glaring errors and omissions on the, you know, in the, on on route to getting to the to the to the punchline. Well, and, what's and a specific we, example? Because there's millions of specific examples, and I think people can relate to this strongly. But yeah, well, I mean, so take. Uh, I mean, it's just a very simple one is. Uh, evidence of racism, right? What constitutes evidence of racism? And if somebody says something or does something and uh, the disposition to score that as you know, proof positive that that person is racist uh, arises in certain contexts and it doesn't in others. And what we owe it to, what we owe to ourselves and to everyone else uh, is to do, to, to figure out what, how to do this well, right? Because we, we acknowledge that racism is a problem and we want less of it. Uh, but however we do it, we should hold the, the same standard of evidence uh, to stable everywhere. And so you t- take the case of someone like Trump. Now, from what I know about Trump, I have no doubt that he's racist, right? I just, I mean, I have enough both public information and private information to, to, to feel that I'm, you know, I'm not unfairly slandering the guy to them. I think, you know, if racism means anything, this guy is, is racist. Now, whether he's, you know, KKK level racist or just, you know, Archie Bunker level racist, you know, we can, we can debate. But 
the guy's a colossal asshole, and this is one of the reasons why he's an asshole. Uh, now, the problem with the left, the problem with the, with the organized opposition to Trump is that people on the left who are rightly worried about racism are so unprincipled in their allegations of racism that half of the, th the things that they find of, as evidence of Trump's racism are not evidence of racism. I mean, they, they will call him a racist a hundred times where it might only be warranted 15 times, right? And that's, it's not only, so you have to be fair to your enemies because pretty soon you're, that, those, that same standard of evidence, the same spurious allegations are gonna be made of your friends. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en Entertainment at 
NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Do you think this spread between reality and, and truth has gotten wider as a result of A, social media, and B, maybe the polarization of the country, which we could get into in a little bit mm-hmm. as well? Like, like, what do you think are the 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 seeds that are spreading this? Because it's it's clearly wider than it seems like it's ever been before. I, I don't know, but it's at it, least in the last t- 20 years. It seems wider. I, I don't know what the ground truth is there. I mean, but it, I, I share that perception. It seems wider. And I like think you can't say any, if you said something in 1985, your career is over now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think social media is a big piece of it. I mean, there's the fact that nothing's disappearing, right? So that there's this, kind of, we're all trailing this, this mountain of digital debris that people can just sort through. And, and in, in many cases, maliciously, you know, re-edit and, uh, you know that we're, we're moving into a time where, I mean, maybe that maybe technology will will solve this problem for us because we will move into a period where, you know, you'll be able to fake anything in a way that's that's undetectable, right? I'll be able to create a video of of you saying anything, and it'll look it'll be indistinguishable from a video of you saying what you in fact said, and then we'll begin to distrust 
all of the all of these digital confections and uh, we'll be left with just you know when when it matters you'll just have to ask the person you know what is it that you actually believe right we've got you know 400 videos of you saying you know, these incompatible things you know who who's the real authority on who you are it might ultimately be you right we could be sort of returned to the gold standard of you know we just have to we just have to ping the person again but in the current environment people are being held accountable to the least charitable possible interpretation of something they may have said half said what well, you know it's something that can be seen or you know or misinterpreted in out of context and everyone is being told they just need to live or die on that by that standard and no clarification or apology in the case of a, a genuine misstep is acceptable right so it's like you know you take um from the Liam Neeson case is a, is a recent one so I mean Liam Neeson and I and you know I need to defensively caveat this because I haven't followed every article that has come out about this. So I don't know if he's, you know, if we have an image of him, at, you know, that is, you know, um, uh, makes him makes uh, what he what I am about to describe look worse than than it in fact is. But uh, the story, as I have it, is Liam Neeson in in the process of doing press for a movie about that had you know vengeance as a theme. Uh, told a story about his past where he had a friend who got raped by a black man and he, for a week afterwards, was in this state of kind of murderous, you know, vendetta rage where he was walking around hoping for a black man to challenge him so that he could murder a black man in any, just and any black man would do, right? So this was a kind of classic blood feud state of mind where, this kind of instrumental violence, right? A person of the same type, a person from the same tribe, will be a sufficient, uh, you know, target of uh, of aggression. I and mean, this is this is this is how vengeance is appropriately aimed. Um, and he was he told the story as a you know an all too honest confession of, can you believe how crazy I was during this week of my life? I mean, you know, thank God nothing bad happened, right? Now that could have been, uh, which you know, you know, it could have been exactly how it seemed to strike me when I first heard about this, as just an amazingly honest confession about just how deranged a human mind could be, even a human mind as respectable and with as much to lose as Liam Neeson's. Right? It's like we, Liam Neeson is a incredibly talented actor who's had a great career who many, many people love, and he is willing to, to talk about how deranged he was for this week of his life. And this opens up a, a very interesting conversation on, on a, a, a massive ethical and political problem. You know, one is just the, the issue of tribal violence and instrumental violence and that we have to outgrow. It's anchored to notions of honor culture uh, of the sort that, that, that Liam grew up in. I mean, he, he grew up through the, that, the period in Ireland where there you know, Protestants and Catholics were murdering each other, um, and very much within this spirit. So, you know, they killed a, they killed a bunch of they killed my brothers. So, I don't have to kill the person who killed my brothers. I'm just going to kill their brothers, right? It's like it's it's you know it, it it is a kind of violence that is by by truly modern ethical standards is psychopathic, and yet it's all too tempting given that we're just 
social primates, and, and this, is, this is the history we come from. Um, so he opened a conversation on this topic, and because there is some construal of what he said that can seem like just stark racism, uh, Whereas I, you know, I would argue again. I don't know what else has come out in the news since I last looked at this, but uh, assuming I'm dealing with the, the story as it as it exists, there was no evidence of racism in in what he said. Right? What, what he the, the the fact that we're talking about a black man in this case is completely epiphenomenal. He could have said, "Listen, listen, my friend was raped by a cop, and so I spent the next week of my life." waiting, just looking for a cop to look at me cross-eyed so that I could kill a cop and, and get vengeance, right? That is a logically identical story, right? And if, if that had been the story, no one would be talking about Liam Neeson's racism. And we would have, and, and that would be the pure case of being able to talk about this sort of derangement, right? Um, uh, or it could have been, you know, this is, you know, there was a, uh, the person was Norwegian, right? And he would be looking for a Norwegian. Whatever it is, all the Norwegians in Ireland. Everything, yeah, everything would shift. But because we are so trigger happy on this on this variable of race, especially black white, you know, uh, difference, uh, people people want to erase this man's career for for the, for having you know uttered these sentences. So that I mean, that's the space we're in, and we have to find. Some... And, and that's your point that it's we're, we're judging his statement. By the by, the worst possible denominator, wor like, wor yeah, the worst possible. I mean, it, it, and it's a fairly tortured interpretation given what he said. But I guess the you know the worst possible in, you know mind reading exercise one could conduct there is Liam Neeson just told us that he has a murderous hatred of black men, right? That's that's who he is, right? It, it's just not even a remotely fair interpretation, but that's where. I mean, the, what, what's so cynical about this is that the people who are calling for his head, and, and again, this is not just one story. There's many, many stories like this in, in recent months. The people who are calling for the, for the, the reputational destruction and, and erasure of, of people like this don't even care if they have their facts straight. It's like they, like they just, they don't even, in many cases, they don't, I mean, this meme that, you know, you have to break a lot of eggs to make an omelet, right? They don't, like, even if you can, when you can point to the case where it's a totally innocent person going down, right? Where, like, the, 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 the story was just wrong, people are so cavalier about that now. Just, well, you know, the, the larger social project is so important that, there, yeah, there will be a few innocent people who just get ground up so, under the, our wheels. So what do you think, what do you think is happening? Like, what do you think triggered that because there's you know definitely rather than signing up to be observers of of facts and multiple interpretations we're signing up to some kind of identity this is who i am this is who i hate and anyone who some intersection of what they say overlaps something i hate i'm going to hate them so we've, we've kind of like changed the way or we've made more extreme the way we we judge people events and so on and it seems to be getting more and more extreme where like you and i talking like this one interpretation could be oh sure two white guys yeah. Oh, yeah. talking about race racism uh they shouldn't be doing that you know which is kind of the whole in, uh, definition of intersectionality where only the the most deprived voices should speak 
Right. So so that's something that's only just appeared recently. Like what's what's triggering this, do you think? Well, it's, it's a few ideas like that one that you that somehow your identity is relevant when talking about basic facts, right? So I mean, your identity can be your de- it's obvious your identity is re- relevant when you're talking about your personal life experience. You know, if you're 7 feet tall, and you've had this experience of you know every time you get in a car or walk into a room you know you're you're hitting your head on something because the ceilings are too low or the you know that nothing is ergonomic for you right okay it totally makes sense that you, that you have a privileged position based on your height to tell the world things that I can't tell the world because I haven't had that that experience right uh, but there's a place to stand outside of our personal experience where we can make fair and dispassionate claims about how the world should be, what would be reasonable, what would be desirable, what would be ethical. Uh, and you know, you and I can talk about racial justice and like what would be fair and what would what what political ends to what you know we would want society uh, aimed. And it's completely irrelevant that we are both white, right? We, it's, it's just you don't actually need to get a, a black person or, or, or two black women or you don't, you, need to, you don't need to balance this conversation to talk about, well, wouldn't it be great to have a society where skin color was irrelevant for any conceivable political process, right? You know, we, we, we can acknowledge that if... You know, someone runs a, a study of resumes where you send out resumes to, to Fortune 500 companies and the resumes are identical except for the fact that you change the names uh, according to two variables. One seemed to, seemed to be, you know, Christian white names and, and the other seems to be uh, either black names or Jewish names or Asian names or, you know, you could run men versus women. And then we look at the results of these, you know, callback interviews or hiring practices, and we see, you know, white guys beat everyone all the time, right? Whether you're white or black or or, or male or female, we can good good people can acknowledge the non-normativity of that, right? Like this is something. Okay, we if this is in fact true, let's shine a light on it and figure out how to correct for it. You, there's no problem in doing that, and. Conversely, when we don't find that sort of thing happening, right, let's be honest about that, right? But what do you have in this sort of victim culture uh, of, you know, intersectionality? You have uh, a few assumptions that are abs- guaranteed to be wrong, right, doing all the heavy lifting. So one, one assumption is any place you look in culture Wherever you see the representation of the people involved deviate from the the population at large, right? So, you look at the, you look at the set of all uh, computer software engineers, or you look at the set of all oncologists, right? If thirteen percent of of those groups are not African American, the only explanation for that departure from the nor- the, the norm is racism, right? If half of each of those groups isn't female, the only explanation is sexism. Right, misogyny. So, so, so the problem becomes then when it actually is true, it's, it's, it's no we're not able to yeah. devote resources accordingly to the actual problem situations. And, like, and I think that happens in general in victim culture. Like 
if everyone says they're a victim, then no one's a victim. You can't right. really devote resources to help the actual victims. Yeah, and, and I mean, this it's just a it's in, it's it's grievance inflation, right? Which is it, which harms people, which is guaranteed to harm people. So you know, if I mean, take the the Me Too movement, right? Completely valid, necessary. Of course, some version of this is exactly what we want to have happening. But if you're not going to distinguish a bad joke from groping, and you're not going to distinguish groping from date rape, and you're not going to distinguish date rape from the guy who climbs through your window in the night with a knife and and rapes you, right? I mean, these are all these bear almost no relationship to each other, right? And yet we have one rubric of just kind of sec, you know, male on female sexual indiscretion that is just casting its shadow over all of this. And there, there are people who are acting like they are equally worried and, and triggered by each of these. And that's just, it's so, it's so unhelpful because you can't talk about, I mean, it, it, it if you're over here saying that, well, you know, Al Franken is no different from, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein, right? You make it impossible to actually put enough, uh, you basically you've got like $10 worth of concern and you if you spend five over here, you've only got five to spend over here. You're devaluing real victims if you're, if you're equating all of these things. Right, so, so what do you think, what do you think will happen? It doesn't, it, it, it seems like trends like this only get worse. It doesn't really seem like historically people get angry and angrier and angrier and angrier. Like this is a continuation of Occupy Wall Street and trends even going back further. What is there any any solution or hope in your in your view? Well, I think you know. I think that it can get worse and worse and worse up to a point where then it just becomes a reductio ad absurdum of itself. It becomes unsustainable. That because, almost seems like it's already happened two years ago. Like, Yeah. No, one one would hope it would feel that way to more people because I mean, it feel, it's been feeling that way for me for you know quite some time. But I think we will reach some kind of tipping point where it's just, it becomes unsustainable because it's just a circular firing squad. I mean, it just, it, just, it will be, begin to feel that way and look that way to everyone. I mean, it's, it's impossible to be so woke that there won't be somebody coming up to the left of you ready to destroy you for your not having you know said exactly the the, the perfect thing you know that because I mean, the ta- the taboos are closing in on all sides right I mean, there's just no space left to occupy if you're I mean, there, there are people who are getting destroyed for just pausing before they endorse a transgender you know combat athlete you know who so so a a a man who a, a biological man who's transitioned to a woman who's competing as a as a female MMA fighter and just you know bloodying and battering biological women with all of the advantages of having grown up a man, you know, like you know, a, a male skeleton, male muscle mass, testosterone for the first tw- twenty years of life, and you know, you get a haircut and cha- and change a few things, and all of a sudden you're a woman who's just wrecking every woman who steps into the cage with him. At a certain point, you 
this this begins to look a little strange, right? And how many women have to get knocked out before women begin to feel like, wait a minute, this is this this has gone a little too far. There will be a thousand examples of this kind of thing, right? There will, and and ones we can't even anticipate. We think just just we will stumble upon data which will make these these cherished purely political uh, notions unsustainable right and so um and we just you know decent decent honest people are the only people who will be able to course correct for these things although everyone thinks that kind of belonging to one of these groups it's this massive group think makes them decent honorable people they've or, they've passed the test they're they're in the group they're they, they found well, their intersections well it's i mean it's, it's i mean the honesty is Honesty is the crucial variable. And so I got into this with with Ezra Klein of uh, of Vox, um, where I had I had Charles Murray on my podcast, and I had a conversation with him. Charles Murray of of Bell Curve, the, the Bell Curve fame. You know, he wrote a book uh, which got him defenestrated. Uh, you know, 20, he 25 years I, ago. IQs of what the the claim is the accusation against the book is that he says that the IQs of White people are higher than IQs of other races. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, that there's there's a. I mean, the the book is, is the 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 most controversial passages in the book are amazingly uncontroversial given the reputation that this, this book has acquired. Uh, but the book has been enshrined as a kind of as a toxic racist uh, manifesto of some kind, which it which it isn't. But there's just a, there's a fact that we have IQ data that. Uh, from various populations comes out that the, the mean level of IQ in various populations is different, right? And let's just step back for a second and ask yourself, what's the prospect of, well, let's take it off IQ for a second. Every, any, anything you can name about a human being that you could care about, intelligence is just one thing, you know, sense of humor, so, you know, any, any, anything that we could, we could imagine that we can quantify, athletic ability, longevity, you know, resistance to various diseases, you know, the strength of your immune system. Uh, just make a list of a hundred th things about a person that you could conceivably care about. Conscientiousness, right? All of these things will have some genetic uh, underpinning and some cultural or environmental underpinning, right? There's no, and there's nothing left, right? There's just, there's, there's your genes and the influences upon the organism and some combination of those two things is tuning all of these variables, right? And then you select identifiable groups that differ with respect to their genetics to some degree because their their ancestors were geographically isolated for a long enough time to so that there is genetic variation. And they differ with respect to their culture to some degree, right? So you can select black African Americans blacks and whites in, in an American context. You can select different groups of black people in Africa. Africa is, in fact, the most genetically diverse continent at the moment. So, you know, West Africans versus East Africans and even, you know, sub tribal subsets within those populations. You get very, you get very different phenotypes. I mean, you get, you get, it's just not an accident that, that you know, the best sprinters in the world you know, if you look at the finals of of the hundred meter dash in any Olympics for the last you know forty years, you see West Africans 
no matter where they came from. It's like the, the guy who's winning from France is going to be West African because there is just there's some incredible genetic advantage. Clearly, this this one can't be cultural for sprinting, you know, and and fast twitch muscle fiber. In in East Africans, in, the, you know, in a subset of Kenyans, right, and Ethiopians, you get you know the, the the top ten marathoners in any marathon for the last several decades, right? These are not accidents, right? This is not we didn't no one and there's nothing politically invidious about this either. This is fine. We can deal with this, right? But it is simply a fact that any group of people, any any groups you identify. If you are going to test the mean values of any of these hundred things you care about, intelligence, conscientiousness, anything else on the list, it would be an absolute miracle if those mean values were the same, right? If you test Norwegians against Italians, if you, t if you test firstborn children of any race or any nationality against fourthborn children, you're not going to get the same values. It, it would be absolutely impossible. Or interestingly, as has been pointed out in a lot of research, if you compare people born in January to people born in December for various reasons, right. lots of results like athletic ability come out different. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. And that that could be just noise. I mean, that could just be, you know, ultimately a sampling error. But there could be a reason for that, right? There could be an immunological reason for that. It's well, the, the, the theory is, is that when they're young, a, a, a 10-month difference in age is a high percentage difference uh, in their lifespans. So they are probably athletically better at a young age. So they get more coaching and tutoring and so on. So that propels them into adulthood. Yeah. Or, I mean, again, I'm just guessing here, but you could also, you're talking about the time, that the, the months during which a woman was pregnant. So you imagine just what, what, what are the, what's the susceptibility to, to illness during various periods of the year, you know, and how does that affect uh, um, uh, an, a baby in utero? Um all of this stuff is possible. I mean, the, the firstborn and fourthborn data, uh, I believe, are, are fairly alarming, which is the the economic and educational prospects of a fourthborn child compared to a firstborn child or an only child are massively diminished, right? We could have a whole victim group start up around fourthborn children, mm -hmm. right? Where are they complaining, right? I mean, they have a legitimate complaint. You just started it right now. Yeah, yeah, get, a, get out the there, boys and girls. I mean, you you have something to complain about because you're... The prospect that you're going to finish college is it's like is reduced by a third or something. I mean, it's it's, it's significant. It's 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 um, uh, and yet we're not burning a lot of fuel over this. I'm not, it, as should be obvious, and it's you know it's just nauseating to even feel that I have to say this. I'm obviously not denying that we have problems with racism and sexism and other forms of bigotry, but. We have to have. We have to grow up. We have to be able to talk about facts, and we have to be. We have to, uh, and an ability to do that, an ability to absorb whatever facts are coming our way, whether we're looking for them or not, could be easily safeguarded by just a clear commitment to some ba basic ethical goals. I mean, we if if we know that we want to live in a society that is ultimately colorblind, right? If we know we want to get more and more bored every time someone says, well, as a black man or as a Jew or as a lesbian, if we want that, we want to diminish the significance of all of that, right? We just want people to be people living as creative and as beautiful lives as they can possibly 
fine for themselves. We know what the end goal is, right? I mean, you know, Mar- it's Martin Luther King. You know, you know, the content of your character is what should concern me, right? So, but people don't think that way. Like, like, and again, this seems a lot related to your conversation about cognitive biases. We we want to be liked. We join the group where there's authority that we respect and has and has credibility in some way, some kind of social proof, mm. and. Once we're in that group, it's like we sign up for all the other beliefs of that group in the most extreme way. So for instance, let's just hypothetically say there's there's the gun lobby. So you're either pro people having guns or against people having guns. There's no middle ground. You have to be an extreme. Like either right. you want to sell little kids machine guns or you, you can't even sell water guns to people. Like people now take more and more extremes. But then there's the other factor, which is that, okay, since I'm anti-guns, it must mean I'm also anti or pro this, 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 and this. All the other, I got to check down the menu of everything this group believes. I might be, it might mean um, pro-Palestine or feel this way about me too or pro-choice or whatever. They're all, it, it's kind of all these different issues are lumped together into one group. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, so that's clearly pathological because there's no logical relationship. Right. To, and yet that's where everyone's going. That's the direction... If you look on your Facebook feed, maybe not you, but for most people, they're going to see just those opinions. Yeah, you know, and and it, it seems whether it's algorithmic or societal, you know, I don't know what the causes are, and and it seems like difficult to find solutions because you're rewarded, you get that dopamine hit if you join the group in the right way. Well, what you're describing is the behavior of a cult. People are, are finding themselves inducted into various cults and and it used to be the behavior of a cult. Cult is small. Yeah. Uh, yeah no. Now it's half of society. Yeah. And the other half, it's both halves. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's and this is something I've pointed out before. It's it, it should be strange to everyone that given one data point, if I, if I know your position on climate change. I've with a high order of confidence, I can predict your position on guns, right? I mean that, right? That's crazy, right? Like, right? They have nothing to do yeah, with each other. These are these are complex issues that don't have many points of contact. I mean, I, I think you could you could probably find something, um, but there are many things like this. So you know, gay marriage. If I know, if I know you're against gay marriage. You know, I'll I'll enter this casino. I'll st- I'll spend all day long in this casino, being able to place bets on your position on a, you know half a dozen other things, um, and this is a this is what happens when people are don't actually care enough that their beliefs are true. But right? they think they care. That's yeah, the thing is they yeah. think they they, but, they but get what, active ed, ed, actually because yeah. they care so much. Yeah, but ed, I mean, a, a real education is intrusive. Right, a real education is a a uh, pressure from without that intrudes into your patterns of thinking and re- and and shoves things around. Right? I mean, you 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 need to like it, you, the process of getting educated, and this is something that we're we seem to be losing touch with, even in our institutions of of uh, highest learning. I mean, when you have 
you know, students at Yale shrieking about the significance of Halloween costumes and calling for their professors to be fired because they, you know, they they haven't been been given a sufficiently safe space. Um, you're seeing the most privileged young people on earth in in a place that is the, the whole purpose of a place like Yale is to it is a, it is a machine into which you want to put bright young minds and tune them to be interested in finding out what's true and 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 give, they give you want to give them all the tools to do that and what many of these people are telling us they want out of this this opportunity is the safest and least offensive kind of coddling right i mean there's 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 a, there's a mismatch maybe the higher institutions though aren't the place for education anymore because well, I mean, what, we're, we're, we're all, what are we? What are we graduating? Every, the students are now firing their professors. Yeah. Uh, what are they actually learning? No. Well, I mean, the, the, the tuition is going up faster than inflation for thirty straight years in a row. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I think the. I mean, it's easy, It's very easy to put the onus on the students, but but the onus is, is really on the administrators in in most of these schools because the the what's happening is that the administrators are caving in. And they're not actually defending the the, the intellectual freedom of, of professors, you know. I mean, and it's just it is a kind of you know Maoist uh, uh, mob uh, dynamic there, where like once you once you get a sufficient number of people complaining, uh, it's just. I mean, the, the experience of anyone who's been in this situation, where. Uh, uh, and this is especially true of, uh, among academics, but I think I mean, this, is, this is, you know, I've been in this situation and, I, and I'm not an ac- academic. When you put yourself out there in a way that draws the ire of the the, the internet outrage culture, what you ha- what you s- experience to a disconcerting degree are the private communications of people who agree with you and support you privately, but who don't have the courage to do that publicly. Right, because right? it seems like. The outrage, for all we know, is still a small minority of the people who are paying attention to your content. That's why you have a popular podcast, your books do well, mm-hmm. people are responding to you. But what you're seeing personally, what people are arguing over are just the psychos on some social media platform that don't like something you said. And that might be a minority. We don't know. They're the loudest voices. It's yeah, a vocal minority. But but they're so loud that they're effective on the majority. So, 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 I mean, for instance, like, you know, I've said things in this podcast, I mean, as defensively as I've, you know, caveated them. I've said these things in the last hour that most journalists, politicians, and academics would be terrified to say, and for good reason, right? Like, the, you know, I've been, I've been you know, I... I who knows where the line really is, but I know in various moments here I've been close to it, you know. And there, there, you know, I, I just have a weird job where it would be very hard to fire me, right? So it's like I, I, I have, you know, I can take risks that that even very prominent people can't take. I mean, you take someone like you know Megyn Kelly, who's a, a recent great example. Like she's got a, a twenty million dollar contract with NBC. And one wrong utterance, right? That she can't apparently sufficiently, you know, apologize for or explain, and it's over, right? The right, and you have to caveat it always because you can't say. So she's made some comment about, well, what's wrong with? What's, she, what's wrong? She with? Rose the que- raised the question. What's wrong with blackface? Now, we have to caveat that's 
perhaps given the context, an incredibly insensitive thing to say. Maybe a lot of, many people were offended by it, but you also look back and, and we're also seeing this kind of uh, in Virginia politics, every politician, it seems is either worn blackface or handed out cotton and Halloween or whatever. But then you have Ted Danson, you know, right. famously wore blackface. I don't know, to some with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, right? with Whoopi yeah. Goldberg. And he's his career. I'm not saying one should wear blackface and one shouldn't. I'm just saying that you like you said earlier, there's unfair treatment across across the line, depending on whose team you're on. It's just that we have if we're grown-ups, we need to be able to talk about these things. And it's and it's we have to care about what is actually true. So let me take the Megan Kelly case. Megan Kelly, and again, I, I, I have to caveat it. I don't know if there's a picture of her somewhere, you know, riding on a you know a clan clan ride with a hood on her head. But uh, if she is who I think she seems to be to me, she's someone who is guilty of simply not knowing how charged this phrase blackface was. Right? She didn't. She doesn't know all the historical antecedents. She doesn't know about minstrel shows or. Certainly wasn't thinking of that them at the time. So what she was saying is, you know, why 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 can't if you're going to dress up like Mr. T or Diana Ross for Halloween, why can't you put the makeup on that's going to make you look like Mr. T or, or, or Diana Ross, right? Like what like that? Like when I was a kid, I I thought we could do that, right? I, I don't know how far she wanted to go in that direction, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that. What's really true of her is that she's got this deep racial bias where she just doesn't care about black people, wants them to be unhappy, wants them to live in uh, in unfair, you know, uh, uh, status in society, and has a special fondness for racist depictions of black people. None of that, right? It's just like it's like, wait a minute, let's just. Uh, this is I'm confused about this. Like, if I, you know, what's wrong with putting on an Afro wig, right? Grownups have to be able to have to be able to ask questions like that and much far more provocative questions. I mean, the, the truth is that's not even a provocative right. question. And in my world, that doesn't even raise an eyebrow, right? I mean, it's just like you you need to be able to, to and this is the example I've given before, if you're in a philosophy seminar, you need to be able to say, listen, all right, we're trying to get to, down to moral bedrock here. So tell me, why can't we eat babies, right? There are unwanted babies in the world. They're full of protein. Why can't we eat them, right? Now, granted, in the wrong context, you sound like a psychopath. I mean, we, you're not going to say that on a political campaign. But given the right context, in this case, a philosophy seminar, that is a completely reasonable and amusing thing to say, right? Or in a comedy club, that would be that, yeah. that sounds like a beginning of a great bit, right? So, but no, but so, but what matters is what's actually true. Is this somebody who really is an aspiring cannibal who just wants to get you know access to to human babies? Or is this a thought experiment that has a deeper purpose? And in the presence, the, the, the problem we're running into politically is that we have people and, and they're disproportionately on the left, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because I, you know, I, I think I want, the, I want the liberals to win in some basic sense. I mean, I consider you know, liberal values to be you know, the most enlightened across the board. But on the left, we have people who do not care what's true, right? Like, like if if they could do a full moral inventory of Megyn Kelly, right, and you see into her soul, and they would discover there that she does not have a racist bone in her body, right? She just simply didn't. She just simply said the wrong words, 
right? She didn't know what the phrase blackface really meant, right? Um, they don't care. Let's break that egg to make this omelet, right? That's what that's who we're dealing with on the left, right? So, so, so I agree, and I maybe maybe where we might disagree is I'm pessimistic that it's going to get better. Now yeah. I don't know if it was worse in 1968 or you know there was students rioting. You don't really see the exact same thing happening now. I don't know if it was worse in the past, but it definitely seems like extreme all across every level of society and accentuated by maybe the social media algorithms, maybe not, I don't know. But so so does it get, in your view, does it get better or can we individually just focus on ourselves and, and kind of pull out from the group think arguments? Well, I think it can get better. I mean, I, I'm certainly, I'm having conversations like this and the, and the kinds of conversations I have on my podcast under the assumption that they matter, right? You know, like so, like if I thought nothing could change, I would be far less motivated to do this. And if uh, certainly if I thought this was going to make things worse, well, then I wouldn't do this, right? I mean, so, so there is an assumption built in that making sense on these issues and uh, trying to push both myself and others through argument toward more consistency uh, in how we think about just the nature of reality. Um, I think it, it has to lead to a good place. And I, now I'm just, I, I pause because I remembered, uh, when I mentioned Ezra Klein, I remember the example that I, w I was wanted to drive to and I, I forgot to get to it. But th this is the kind of thing that worries me, right? So. And this is something that I brought up to Ezra in our in our podcast together, and for, for which he had no response because he is in fact part of this cult that actually can't process this uh, these data in this form. Here, you know, a few years ago, it was found that that Homo sapien DNA and Neanderthal DNA are are mingled in every human population. I think that we are aware of now. Except for those who have, who never whose ancestors never left Africa, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Africans are a hundred percent Homo sapiens. You and I, and and Asians, uh, and uh, literally everyone else, there's something around you know two point seven percent Neanderthal, right? Mm -hmm. So at the time, you know, this was you know I thought this was hilarious, as did many people. And at the time, uh, I think it was 2014, I tweeted. Attention all racists, you are right. Whites are special. Uh, we're part Neanderthal. Blacks are just human, right? Uh, something like that, right? So it was, just, it was just me trolling the world's racists, right? And, so, and, and also just, you know, kind of virtue signaling, I guess, or, 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 or you know, revealing my bias, which I think is totally uh, justifiable, that it, it's good that there's something that makes racism look even more ridiculous than it in fact is. Um, but what if the data had come back the other way, right? What if just by dint of bad luck, the guy in the lab who found that these data found that, the look, the only people who are part Neanderthal are black, right? This would have been just a, this would have been a career-ending discovery for this person, right? The, the scientist who spoke about this, honestly, the journalist who reported on it, honestly, would have been destroyed, right? That's coming, right? The data of that kind that whether we're looking for it or not are going to just land in our microscopes and in our 
labs and we will we are we are advertising to ourselves now that we are totally incapable of talking about this like grown-ups right that we we're so we're we're so worried that our politics can't survive facts that we're willing to ruin anyone who who uh, who by again by by even by accident is caught standing on the wrong set of facts right and so there there are people who are who are pretend- and it's even more because their careers are rewarded for ruining exactly the others yeah, yeah. so that's why I don't think things get better before they get more worse because well, there's well, still the un- those rewards the, the, the unsustainability of this has to be become more salient right so and th- and this is what I mean when you're talking to somebody like Ezra Klein and he has no answer for this that has to matter now the problem is it only it matters to my audience it doesn't matter to his right and because the, and and so that that every audience has to become more and more sensitive to the ways in which they are becoming cult like right and therefore un- unreasonable uh, and they and therefore vulnerable to internal contradictions that will show just the, their their operating system to be unsustainable and so I mean, I think we we owe it to ourselves to to care about our own contradictions, uh, and we owe it to others, those with whom we're arguing, to uh, continue to point out their internal contradictions. I mean, this is this is actually the most compelling sort of uh, criticism of another person's view. It's not. It's 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 one thing to say. I mean, if we're arguing about you know religion or or climate change or whatever it is. If I'm pointing to facts over there that you don't acknowledge, right? It's a it's a very weak argument. I, I can't make a lot of headway with you. But if I can if I can show you the way in which your own assumptions, your own axioms, are in conflict with themselves, right? That like you that, that you actually can't functionally believe what you say you believe at you know everything at the same time, right? I mean, you could believe one thing on Monday and another thing on Tuesday, but if you try to get those two, the, the Monday truths and the Tuesday truths to to cohere, you're actually in contradiction with yourself. That's a much more powerful rebuttal to you. And we we have to. But that's where people have the bias, though. They just won't admit it. Yeah. They won't yeah, see. Well, yeah, yeah. And so I'm just wondering what. That's why is, this is a very frustrating job to, what, to argue like, about this. And, and maybe the solution is like, look at your background. You live. You've lived a very different sort of career path than most people. You mm-hmm. you left college for 10 years to visit India, explore meditation, explore all sorts of alternative ways of living. Uh you 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 kind of did everything out of order. You wrote seminal books before getting the PhD where some parts of society would say you had you should have waited. Mm-hmm. Um you kind of you know did your own path and maybe that's Maybe just education from a beginning level has to change and encourage kids to to do to take an, a look at alternative ways of of living, and that's how you have, develop alternative viewpoints. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I think what it means to be educated is continually shifting because it's it's not it, at one point it meant uh, memorizing a lot of facts, right? I mean, it's like if you if you could if you just had a great memory. You could be very well educated. Well, uh, on some level, technology is 
making that less and less relevant. I mean, the fact that you can you you have the totality of human knowledge accessible to you, you know, from this smartphone in your pocket, uh, it's a we have a different different challenges, right? Then, then it's like how how can you actually vet the information that's coming to you? You know, every every time you turn on this fire hose of of data, uh, how intelligent can you be in in just judging what you should pay attention to? Um, I don't know. I, I think a lot will have to be rethought in terms of how we teach people to think clearly and deal with information and um, and just how we we uh, more and more we have to recognize that culture is a kind of operating system and it's it's got lots of bugs and it's got i mean we're 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 inside this thing that is delivering our minds to us i mean like our minds are not just what our brains are doing in each moment i mean our, our minds are are external like I mean, everything around us is a, is an idea on some level i mean a water bottle is is an idea made manifest and um we're not aware of how more and more of this is up for grabs right we're not we're not aware of how the 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 ch- how memes are constraining how we think uh making certain types of thoughts possible or impossible uh and they're being you know it's they're made physically manifest i mean the the, the, the fact that just the fact that we have this technology available to us where uh, it feels like you should be, I mean, it's just, it's just changed the sense of what it is to be a, a friend or a, or a, or a spouse, or it's like, like you're, it changes the sense of what, what, what a human relationship is. I mean, I have, I have friends who I have almost never met physically, right? Like I have friends who are real friends but the, the, virtually the totality of our relationship is email, right? What is that, right? That's a that's a that's a new thing, right? And these these friends may know more about things I really care about than my real my quote real friends who I hang out with a lot in you know physical space and and who who know me in a very different way. But I have some people who I would I would call even my best friends who know much less of what I think about these sorts of topics than than you do right now, right? So it's like, and yet all of this, is, this is a weird landscape psychologically and socially that has only come into being based on changes in technology and very recent changes in technology. And so, so taking that one step further, you know, and this is a slightly different tangent, but some aspects of this growing technology is ultimately going to, surpass our ability to control or predict it, you have a very uh, negative uh, outlook on that, you know, from like your recent uh, TED talk from a couple of years ago, you mm-hmm. know, just w- the direction AI is going, you sort of see this generalized intelligence that could be 20, 50, 100,000 times more powerful than our own brains that could decide to just discard us. And that's that's kind of on your landscape yeah. of how the world could end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm worried about it and I'm 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 doubly worried about it because it I it's very hard to worry about it. I mean it's 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 the kind of thing where if you think about it, you've talked about it, it's kind of fun to think about and talk about. And like cuz life gets better and better until in in your scenario, life is just going to get better and better and better 
until there's this utopian tipping point where it becomes infinitely bad, like Terminator bad. Well, it, well, it, it, not necessarily, but it's it's just that the thing that I notice about these AI danger scenarios is that they feel different to talk to worry about, and it's kind of fun to worry about them. So even even the the kind of the, the emotional valence of being worried feels different than worrying about something else that would would also spell the ruination of well, everything well, we care about. Well, let's climate so change theorists are right. correct in that this generation, New York City is going to be underwater, the North Pole is going to melt. Let's just take the worst case scenario. Right. That feels like dangerous physically right now if, in the worst case. Well, 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 the problem is it doesn't. So, I mean, so each one of these things is different. I mean, so, I mean, climate change is another reference point that's interesting because so, we, we just we can't really get ourselves to care about climate change. You know, it's like, I mean, honestly, I I don't know how many minutes uh, a week I spend thinking about climate change, but it's tiny. I mean, it's embarrassingly tiny, right? I'll acknowledge that it's a, a real problem and it may in fact be, the, you know, on the short shortest of short lists of, of you know, biggest problems we face. Uh, but it is, it's almost impossible to really get motivated by it's it's this slow moving emergency i mean first of all i'm not you know i'm i'm not close to the data right like the fact that there's any that 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 you can get fake phds or real phds or deranged phds to stand up and say listen you know all these models are wrong you know this has been ex exaggerated uh, for decades uh, that puts a seed of doubt into many people's minds the fact that we know this thing is so politicized that it's very likely that there is some exaggeration. There is some, you know, some uh, model creep and um, gaming of the discourse because it's it is just in this in it, based on the, the the moral necessity of getting this across, trying to get some appropriate emotional reaction to what is in fact a very scary scenario. Even the most scrupulous scientists will be led to start talking like politicians, right? This is, this is, all of this is just so, I mean, the, the fact that we, that I know that to, to be skeptical about climate change is to basically sign your death warrant, you know, you know, academically or intellectually. Um, uh, it's, you know, I understand that those incentives are not good for an honest conversation about the data, right? So the truth is, I believe the part, I believe, I believe the party line on climate change, but I find the topic so boring compared to other topics that I spend no time looking into it, right? So I basically, I just check, you know, if you ask me for an inventory of my beliefs and, you know, I check the climate change box, you know, I'll check that all day long because it's easy to, but I, 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 I spend much more time thinking about more vivid concerns. Well, right? like, so, wouldn't AI, uh, like death by AI fall into that category as well? Like, we well, don't really. It's like, just a different one. It's like so. Like, like AI, we it, the way AI broken down into the actual software works is mostly statistics. You know, some right. advanced, you know, different advanced statistics that, and the math basically improves over time, and the hardware improves over time. But it's not like there's any sense that there's real intelligence happening. There's there's no consciousness happening, for instance. Well, con I think consciousness is separable. So, so let me just to, to put this into context. So the climate change is one problem that 
you know, I think virtually anyone who's looked at the data, and you, I mean, you're kind of relying on the authority. If, if you're not the one who's become a climatologist and looked at the data, you're just relying on on what is being advertised to you from the the, the, the conversations among you know those who have, um, you know, cli- the fact that climate change is is human induced and seriously problematic seems to have a level of of credence among scientists that's analogous to like you know smoking is bad for your health right so it's like it's a real problem so and i don't doubt that but again it's a problem that is so uh amorphous and so caveated and the time horizon is long enough that uh and the the description of it is is uh, misleadingly benign enough. It's like, like, like you know, two percent, a, a, a two degree change in in global, you know, uh, uh, t- average temperature. That doesn't sound bad, right? Now, people say, well, this is you know, th- that correlates with this level sea ri- sea level rise, and right, but it's it's impossible to make it vivid in the way that you could make, or it's 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 apparently impossible to make it vivid enough to be able to compare it with an analogous disaster like, you know, a pandemic flu, right, that kills some horrendous proportion of humanity, right? And yet it may be an equivalent problem. So we have problems that where we, it's just by the nature of the problem and the and the kind of the, the quickness of their onset, you know, are, they could, they should be seen as analogous, but we've, we, you know, we just, we, we can't get them to, to look analogous. And it, we just know we have bugs in our system of of moral appraisal. Where I mean, I talked about this with Danny Kahneman last night. I mean, we just know that if you if there's a narrative that can be personalized, if a problem can be crystallized with around a person's story, right? One little girl falls down a well, you know, and she's she's going to run out of oxygen. You know, CNN will cover that, you know, 24 hours a day until that girl is pulled out of that well, right? But if I tell you that there's 500,000 girls in Sudan who are, you know, quickly starving to death, right? Or if there's a, you know, cholera epidemic that's going to wipe them out over the course of the next month, people just, it again, that's the sort of thing that's so boring that the news can't even afford to cover it because they're going to lose viewers, right? Um, it's just. We know we have to correct for this, right? In any case, what's unique about the AI problem for me is that not only is it kind of hard to imagine, it's fun to imagine even the worst outcomes, right? You get this sort of you know science fiction thrill from it, so that even while you're thinking through the the potential downside of you know suddenly finding yourself in relationship to super intelligent machines that have their own goals, say, um, and then it can improve themselves. It's just kind of cool to talk about, right? It doesn't, you don't feel like, you don't feel like you're talking about cholera, right? And, and, uh, that's just a, 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 what I view as a kind of a unique liability there that it's just, it's like, you don't, you're sort of worrying doesn't feel like worrying and yet worrying is is something that it seems very important to do in that space because we 
you only need a, you only need a couple of assumptions to get on this train, and then there's uh, I can't see a way off. One, one assumption is that there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat, right? Like you, you like if intelligence is just a matter of what information processings of a certain complexity do, and there's every reason to think that that's true. There's nothing magical about the the material in our heads that's doing it. So you can build intelligence into machines in a way that's substrate independent. We already know this is true for narrow intelligence. We know our calculators really calculate. You know, we know we know that you can process information in machines. Uh, and then the question is, is there something magical about general intelligence, so-called general intelligence, that cannot be arrived at by any process we can we can set working in in machines and there's just no reason to think that that's true there's nothing i mean you, you'd have to imagine that in addition to the meat computer we have we have some uh spooky stuff that could never be in the machines right that there's no that, that that it's not that intelligence isn't at bottom a matter of the hardware and software uh that it is is set running on these machines and the moment you you dispense with those assumptions and acknowledge that the that that intelligence is a matter of information processing and that that this can be done in any material that can process information well then you just have to acknowledge that any pace of progress we don't need moore's law to continue we just need to keep making progress will it eventually deliver us a, a, a superhuman level of intelligence in our machines. Right, but there's also no evidence. We don't know, like you say, we maybe this, our intelligence might be just the, the way our our brain basically works like this advanced computer. We don't know where consciousness plays but a con role in con that. Consciousness is irrelevant because consciousness is just... Unless that's what causes generalized intelligence. Yeah, yeah but I don't think there's any reason to think that that's true. I mean, and it wouldn't even... I mean, most of what our mind, well, most of what our brains do is unconscious, right? And most of, and most competence, you can easily imagine uh, increasing competence in any domain that's never associated with consciousness. There's never, never the, there's never something that is like to be that system processing that information, and yet it, and yet it's effective in the world. So, like, to, I mean, just take chess as the, as the simplest example. Chess was something that only humans did until we built machines that began to do it by very different principles computationally, no doubt, than, than, than human brains do it, but more and more and more effectively until you get, get to a certain point where the, the best chess player on earth is a machine, right? And it doesn't matter that it doesn't know it's playing chess. It doesn't matter that it has no consciousness. In that domain, it is more effective than a person, right? Now we're still, now we're in this kind of, this, uh, uh, I would argue, brief epoch where the combination of the best human chess player and the best computer is better than than any computer. Is that true? Got Carrie in the room? Is the combination okay. of a, it used to be, right, the combination of a human and a computer. Is it still true? Because when you were on my podcast, you were quite sanguine about it being true for a very long time. Is it still true? Yes, it is. Uh, the combination okay. is. What you said five minutes ago was not. What 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 wasn't about true? General intelligence. I told I disagree completely with what you said. What part of it? Yeah, you, you, general you, intelligence. What about general intelligence? 
it's 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 not achievable for machine the way it's, I see it. Okay, because, because so, like take take Deep Blue for example that right. that beat Gary. Sorry, Gary. Uh, take Deep Blue as an example. The way they the way it won was by stripping out the the any notion of intelligence. It was it kind of reduced the AI and to speed up the hardware is how it kind of changed from 1997 to 1998. But to your point, that doesn't matter. However, it does it. It was able to mimic human intelligence and the, and and we'll be able to find that in, in more and more domains until it's enough domains that it almost seems human-like, that we have lots of... I think that's what Gary means by generalized intelligence. Well, so, no, there's, there's two things we could mean, and there, I would grant you that they're different, and this difference may matter for some things, but it won't matter for everything. So there's, there's uh, the possibility of building a, my, a an artificial mind that is... Very, very, very similar to a human mind in in what we mean by a general capacity for intelligence, uh, and it's and then there and then there's another version where we could, in a more piecemeal way, build kind of knit together a lot of separate narrow intelligences uh, that don't totally cohere. They're not they're not general in this in this first sense, but this they're still massively effective in all of their domains and that they cover, you know, the top hundred domains say that we care about, right? So you take the top, you t take the top hundred things that we care that humans are good at. And we manage to knit together all these specialized intelligences, which are superhuman. And yet there's still some place to stand and say, well, that's not really general intelligence, but man, that thing is better at chess and it's better at reading facial expression and it's better at detecting emotion. And it's, it's, it's better at, at every. We just keep adding to the list of things it's better at, and that, and now we're in relationship to that thing. But there's no reason to think it's conscious, and there's and it's there's still something we haven't figured out about this other thing, which we're now calling general intelligence. Now, a couple things to say about that. One, the human brain is also sort of a little like this, the just Jerry built thing. That, you know that I just. Uh, uh, referred to, you know, in, a, in derogatory terms, uh, but there's just no reason to think that that whatever general intelligence is in our case or could be ultimately is substrate dependent. That it has to be made of meat. I mean, just think of just. I mean, this is it's an effective rhetorical device to keep saying the word meat because meat is not a promising substrate here compared to all other pot. I mean, there's. It, it would be ridiculous if we lived in a universe where this, the, the, what we know to be information processing, uh, that, that, that the crucial part of information processing that led to uh, general intelligence or even consciousness was, was, had to be biological. I mean, we know that there, there are arguments that can be made computationally, there are arguments that can be made logically that falsify this. I mean, if I, as long as I give you an art, if I give you an artificial neuron that has the same input and output characteristics of a, of a biological neuron and I swap it in, you know, provided the input and output characteristics are the same, you should expect this, it, it to have the same functional consequences in your nervous system, right? Uh, then just start adding neurons like that, then all of a sudden you will have an artificial brain that is doing the same, has the exact same computational property. I guess we don't know how complex that really is. There's no science that could tell us 
it, how far we, we could be. We may never get there. Yeah, oh, sure. That, I mean, that, that's if that if it is even possible at all. Yeah, no, I'm arguing. I, no, no, yeah. The, the the doubt about its possibility, I would argue, is just obviously specious. Whether we're going to get there or not is a. I mean, that's just a a. Uh, it's just a question of you know what is is achievable you know, and 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 when it's achievable. But I would I would argue that there are a few kind of failure modes of of our thinking about this that are consequential. One is that we're not many people who are skeptical of of the kinds of noises I'm making now, who think there's nothing to worry about. I mean, someone like um, I mean, a very famous. Uh, statement in the AI community now is is to, to to worry about this is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, right? I mean, like this is just this is so far away that we've got so many other things to worry about. This is just you know you're, it's synonymous with a waste of brain power. Well, to to this has a few built-in assumptions, right? So to say that this is so far away that we don't have to worry about it. Uh, is to assume that the time we have between now and when it arrives is enough time to to solve all the problems we need to solve to do this safely, right? So we don't know how much time that is. But if I say, you know, it, most people would find it consoling if we said, you know, if all if all you know AI scientists agreed, this is not going to happen for seventy five years. No way we get superhuman AI in the next 74 years. Probability zero. Okay, well, that that should only be consoling to people who care about the far future, provided we have some reason to believe that 75 years is enough time to get our house in order and to figure out how to build superhuman AI that is truly aligned with, with human well-being. Uh, because, again, it, it seems fairly obvious that there are there – are, in the space of all possible superhuman minds, there are more ways to build. Build there are more of them that are that, that would not be perfectly aligned with our well-being than those that would be. Right? This, it's just like there's no. In the same way that we're not aligned with with the lesser intelligences that we trample upon all the time. It's not. It's not that we 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 hate them. You know, it's not that we. It's like you know, there are birds out in the trees over there that we, whose well-being we disregard all the time. It's not, we don't. We haven't declared war on the birds, but just when we decide to build a building like this or or do whatever, you know, per, pursue any ends we care about, we're not thinking about the birds. You know, the, the birds are an afterthought, and if we wind up killing some birds or ruining their habitats, they're just not on our radar. And there are more superhuman intelligences like that than those that we could build that would constantly track our you know what we want what we wish they would do for us and with us right we we, we what we want to build is because i mean here's the here's the primary failure of imagination i keep encountering with people people imagine that we build that you know, we'll build machines that are smarter and more effective and more competent than we are across the board right so the best scientist will one day be a computer the best psychologist will one day be a computer it'll be just chess as far as the eye can see right uh, what people are then failing to imagine is we will be in relationship to these minds 
right? This is a relationship. This isn't just a tool anymore. I mean, you're not, if, if, if you're imagining it to, as just a tool, right, or just a curiosity, you're not, you're not actually imagining that level of intelligence. You're not, you're not, you're, it's like if someone walks into the room and sits down at this table and we don't know them, right? But the fact that they walked in and sat down and, and introduced themselves, okay, we know we're in relationship, right? Like we don't know what this person wants really. We don't know, you know, wh why they, you know, but, but there, there are things we, we immediately understand as social primates. We know that the possibility of this person lying to us or manipulating us for his or her own ends, that's obviously on the menu, right? We know this is the kinds of things that minds do. But when you say to someone, when you, when you express a concern about AI and you say, well, we're going to build uh, artificial minds that may deceive us, right? That may manipulate us. That sounds absurd. Like, why, why would we ever build a computer that would manipulate us, right? Well, if you think we could never build a computer that would mani manipulate us, you're not actually imagining building a mind, you're not you're not imagining what it would like what it will be like to be in relationship to an independent intelligence, right? And there's just no reason to think again uh, on so, whatever time horizon of open-ended progress we're not going to build such minds. Yeah, so it's so it's interesting. So as a thought experiment whether it's real or not, you're basically arguing this is a scenario we have to play out and it could happen might not, might be so far away, or it might be that the time it takes to build such an intelligence is also the time required that we develop defenses against it. Much in the way, I mean, we could build a, a disease, we could genetically build a, a mutation of the flu that could be released and cause a pandemic. Mm. We can do that today. But for whatever reason, we don't do it. So there's, there's some, it seems like there are some but backstops. The, yeah. Well, no, the, but the problem is, is that there there aren't those backstops because the how this is unlike synthetic biology or or um, genetic engineering or anything else that is scary and powerful and and seems to need regulation or at least need need some consensus that that we you know there are breaks we want to be able to pull. The the thing that is most the thing the thing that is most dangerous about AI. Uh, is the thing that is also most tempting, right? Whereas in the case of you know nuclear uh, technology uh, or um, genetic engineering, you know germline mutation, right? Like so, like well, like there's a consensus among molecular biologists and and people who would be uh, poised to meddle with the the genome that. There's a uh, there's a difference between making changes to the soma and making changes to the germline, right? Like anything that our descendants are going to uh, in inherit irrevocably, that requires more ethical thought. And it's uh, but imagine a world in which making cha changes to the germline was just massively incentivized, right? Where like this is the thing that is going to make you a trillion dollars, right? Like uh, like like the the, the step. To you know, as long as you can change the sperm and the the ovum, that's where the money is, right? That's more the situation we're in with AI, where there we have a kind of arms race uh, condition where we're just trying to get more of it because intelligence is the most valuable thing in the world, right? And this is and this is why there's just there is actually 
no real break to pull because intelligence is the most valuable thing in the world, right? Intelligence is the thing we need to get everything else we need, right? And to protect everything we have. It's, it is the thing that will cure cancer. I mean, it's, you know, you know, uh, you know, deference to Gary, but it's, there are more important problems than chess, right? And every problem, if it has an answer, it has an answer based on the creative use of intelligence. And, so it's like we, we are, this is, I mean, on some level, the, the only thing scarier than not building, than, than building superhuman intelligence that's not aligned with our interests is not building superhuman intelligence. We need it. You know, I mean, we have massive problems that we want to solve. You know, that, like, you know, so you're, from, I mean, so you're basically I, just saying, I mean, not just, but you're saying basically, this is something that's very positive to society. We just have to keep an eye on it, or we have to kind of keep track of where the problems are. Well, it's, no, it's more than keeping an eye on it because I, I would. I've been talking about this a lot lately. I talked, I spoke about this last night with Danny Kahneman in the Q and A period. But the the, the uh, philosopher Nick Bostrom, who wrote the, the book Superintelligence, which actually has done probably more than anything else to make these these AI concerns fairly vivid to many of us. Uh, uh, I mean, granted, there's, there's, a, there's, a spectrum of, there's a spectrum of concern. There are people who just think this is, again, that this, there's nothing to worry about here. And then the people who think we are more or less guaranteed to annihilate ourselves based on what we're, you know, what we're building. Um, and I put, put myself somewhere in the middle, but it's a clearly valid thing to worry about. And Nick Bostrom has made a very strong case for, for um, why it's valid to worry about. But he has a larger uh, uh, set of concerns, uh, and he just wrote this essay uh, titled "The uh, The Vulnerable World Hypothesis." And he, what he asks us to imagine, is what he calls the urn of invention. And it, the urn contains balls of, of various colors, uh, and we have uh, throughout his, history. I mean, for certainly for the last two thousand years. We have been reaching into this urn and pulling out either white or gray balls, and we've been doing this as kind of rapidly as we can. And but a white ball is a piece of technology, or a meme, or a a social norm, or an institution, an idea you know, made manifest that has good consequences. Right, a water bottle. I mean, this is it's a fairly white ball. This is a super convenient. It's you know there, there's a, a downside with you know plastic you know, pollution, but there's, uh, so maybe it's a gray ball. So the, the other kind of ball we pulled out is a gray ball, which is there, there are pros and cons to this technology. It's, it gives us, you know, there's, you know, a quintessential gray ball is, you know, splitting the atom, right? I mean, we can, get, we can release massive amounts of energy, but that comes with toxic waste and it gives us a, a power to des destroy ourselves. Uh, it's a fairly gray ball. Uh, the question is, are there any black balls in the urn? Right, we're, re we're reaching into this urn. Um, our, our default setting is, get your hands into this urn as fast as you can and pull something out. Right, that's what science is doing. Right, and what he's asking us to consider is, there may be some black balls in the urn, which is a piece of technology or a idea that cannot be undiscovered, that is so destructive that it spells the end of civilization, right? That we actually can't live in proximity to this idea or insight for very long before we destroy ourselves. 
And you know, examples of that would be, um, what if nuclear fission were just much easier than it turned out to be? What if there was no fuel cycle needed to enrich uranium or, or plutonium? What if, what if it, you, could, you could create a, a, uh, an atom bomb just by taking two pieces of glass and a magnet and sticking them together and just running some current through them, right? Then we'd be living in a world where, you know, after in a few short years, cities everywhere would have gone up in, you know, in radioactive ash because we do live in a world where, you know, one in a million people is sufficiently suicidal, callous, nihilistic that they're going to run that experiment. They're just going to blow everything up just because they feel like blowing everything up. I mean, you know, one in a million airline pilots are going to com commit suicide by just crashing their plane into the ground, right? Uh, be, and not caring that they're killing, they're, they're actually the, the biggest mass murderers, you know, nobody's ever heard of. We don't even know the names of these people, but we know this has happened, right? So if it were that easy for one person to destroy the lives of millions, we'd be dead already, right, in this way. So that would be a black ball. It seems fairly plausible that there are some black balls in the urn and we're spending no time thinking about what they might be. Un misaligned AI could be a black ball. Um, there are other black balls he, he um, describes. I mean, some, so, I mean, there's sort of the kind of the easy nuke version, but there's also the, the ver I mean, cli climate change by dint of bad luck could be a kind of black ball in that just imagine if climate change were much worse than it, it in fact seems likely to be. And we were talking about like a 20 degree rise in temperature over the, co over the course of 50 years. That would be, as far as I understand, synonymous with just the erasure of, of civilization. Uh, but we just may, in fact, be the sorts of primates that can't care about a 20 degree rise in temperature over the course of the next 50 years. We just can't, we, will, we can't get our act together politically and economically and such that we can respond to this emergency that is in fact a, an emergency. Uh, so there are certain, certain things that we, even knowing that they're, you know, it's, it's mission critical for us to respond, we can't respond in, in, in a timely way. Um, anyway, this is just to say that there are very few people, it's like Nick Bostrom and 15 other people giving thought to this sort of thing. Right, we're, we're, and and our default condition is, let's just do more experiments. Let's just get more knowledge. Let's just share more data. Let's just, it all has to be transparent. You know, like the the the, the recipe for some for you know, smallpox is let's let's put it on the internet. Right. So so it's, I'm going to bring it actually full circle because sure. this is uh, that's a, that'll be quite an act of geometry <laughs> because we're we're all over the place. Yeah, well, and also just recency bias. We want to make sure we don't end this podcast with destroying the world. Right. But. Uh, uh, you know, part of what's happening here with both the the cognitive biases, the groupthink we talked about, whether it's you know hashtag Me Too or pro guns, anti guns, and all this, everything that's happening uh, in this extreme way that's harmful to society, all the way to are we not thinking clever cleverly enough about these black balls that seem inevitable if they're going to occur? Uh, it's all related to this idea that we have to guide our own thinking more than just relying on 
what's worked for the past 4,000 years. So for 4,000 years, just increasing technology has worked or seemed mm -hmm. to, seems to have worked. For 4,000 years, these cognitive biases have obviously worked because that's how we built society. We evolved to have these biases because we've Darwinistically selected for them. And so now we have to kind of change the way we think a little bit because the stakes are much higher and much more global in ways that we've never encountered as a species before. And so I'm going to bring it full circle mm -hmm. to your meditation app. Okay. And I would argue that uh, spending time reflecting on what's really happening inside your mind is, is important. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, I don't know that it lands squarely on my meditation app, but I mean, <laughs> meditation is one tool in the, in the toolkit. I, th I think it's you know knowing what yeah, I mean. So what's unique about meditation is that it's it's the only act that can allow you to find some intrinsic properties of consciousness that are that you realize that you you are seeking you're seeking a state of being. By gratifying desire and uh, and trying to become somebody in the world, I mean, trying to realize some plan for yourself, which seems to promise a a, a justification for you to be satisfied with the present moment, right? Like, if I only get my life together in these ways, if I could only find someone to marry me, if I could only make some more money, if I could only, you know, if my, if my only my hair weren't falling out, I mean, there's all, if only, if only, if only, then I'd be able to just relax and be happy, right? And we spend most of our lives, just an absolutely galling percentage of our lives, never settling down in the present moment because we have reasons why not. We have reasons why this present moment isn't good enough. Now, meditation is a direct response to that largely false problem. I'm not saying there aren't plans we should, I mean, obviously this conversation was just a, a litany of reasons why we should get various things done in the world. Uh, but the question is how, how, do, how, how much well-being can we feel every step along the way? Is, and, it, is, it, that, is it that problem that's solving? Because what if you had anti-anxiety medication that had no side effects? Right. Would you need to meditate then or can you just say, okay, I need another prescription? Well, no, it's because it's more than just being free of anxiety. It's being, uh, I mean, because anxiety isn't the only you know source of, of mental anguish. And uh, there's just more, it's just a fact that consciousness has uh, an intrinsic property of, of equanimity and well-being that can, that can be found uh, Fairly arbitrarily, I mean, like it actually, does, like, like it, just being concentrated is intrinsically pleasant, right? So you literally, you can concentrate on the breath, which is just an arbitrary object. You can concentrate on your work. You can be a lot like what much of what we find satisfying in intellectual engagement or even athletic performances. I mean, when we, when we're, in, when you're in a so-called flow state, right? Uh, it is the quality of attention, right? Because it, but many of these things are, just, are, when you think about it, they're just they're arbitrary sense phenomenon. You know, it's like what what is it what is it about uh, you know bouncing a rubber ball on a floor and throwing it through a hoop 
why what why can that feel so good when done uh, when when there's no distance between you and the act when you're not busy thinking oh I, I hope I make it did I like can you know am I going to make the team you know God I I did this better yesterday when none of those thoughts are intruding and you're just completely in the flow of in this case playing basketball right why would that be satisfying at all well part of it is this a generic feature of the mind which is concentration is deeply rewarding right and meditation is a is a way of just simply using that knowledge directly and changing the way you feel based on just applying your attention and again it can be applied uh, at random to anything you could stare at a water bottle and feel better and better the more concentrated your mind gets and then you can use that tool uh, I mean, it, the, the ultimate goal of meditation isn't merely to feel better in the moment like that. It's to actually use your, your powers of observation to discover certain things about the nature of your mind which are important to discover, which is I mean, to take one you know, highly relevant piece is that you know, negative emotion, which rules us most of the time, you know, anger and fear and, and uh, resentment and anxiety, these are... These are emotions that dissipate almost immediately when you actually pay, simply pay attention to them, right? When you become the word of, of art now that is ubiquitous is mindful. You know, when you become mindful of an emotion like anger, it has a half-life of a few seconds, right? So if you think that, you know, when you get angry and you stay angry for an hour, that is the actual half-life of anger, you're just mistaken about the, you know, depending on what level you want to talk about, you're, you're, you're mistaken about neurophysiology, you're mistaken, you're mistaken about psychology, you're mistaken about what it's like to be you. What's actually happening is you're spending that hour lost in thought about all the reasons why you should be angry, right? You're talking to yourself and you're not aware of it. And um, the structure of our subjectivity is, is bizarre and very few people know it. It's bizarre in a way that is engineering our unhappiness so that we spend a lot of time uh, being far less satisfied with our lives and our experience than we could be because we're telling ourselves a story about what just happened and what's going to happen. And we're always just essentially looking over the shoulder of the present moment at what's coming. And it's a... Um, it, it it is the basis of so much so many of the problems we think we're we're, we're going to solve by by acting in the world. So med, so meditation is you can sort of solve many of your emotional problems before anything happens. I mean, like and then then you can then you can decide what is worth doing from a, a far less uh, a far more dispassionate place. Right? Like you're all like like what is it like to be in relationship when you're already happy? Right? Like you're not getting married in the hopes that it's gonna make you happy, you're actually happy, and then you're deciding whether you wanna spend the rest of your life with this person, right? That's a very different kind of relationship to have. You're not, it's, it's, it's. I, that, wish, that, I wish I knew that two marriages ago. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But that, but that can be true of anything. It's like you're, you're, you're moving into a new direction in your career based on, it, it can be far less, it can be far more balanced exploration of the of the opportunity space if you understand that there's a there's a a default level of well-being that is accessible before anything happens before anything changes and and again it seems like if you're not devoting that hour of 
mental resources, being angry or anxious or having these negative thoughts, if you're able to kind of focus attention on it, so as you say, the half-life gets reduced to seconds, then you're able to develop these resources or, or to, to reuse these mental resources to either be happier or focus on solving some of these problems that we were talking about or breaking away from the groupthink and other cognitive biases that are filling your mind with stories that are just stories, they're mm -hmm. not real. And it seems there's like this practical use for it as well. You know, kind of like I would argue you're, you, you're a very authentic person and you've written about authenticity. You have a book called Lying. Um, I would argue that part of authenticity is kind of breaking free from the societal structures or biases or, you know, things that aren't as authentic but have built up in society as things to worry about or think about or be angry about and instead focus on what's really happening internally. That's how you become authentic. Mm. That's how you sort of find a, yourself or, or your not self as the whatever it is you believe in. Yeah, I, I think there are, there are just a few concepts here that can change people's thinking in a useful way. I mean, one is that well-being is a kind of skill, right? It's like, it's like, and it's in the absence of that skill that people tend to be as neurotic and, un, and unhappy as they are, right? So there, there are things you can learn about your, just the mechanics of your own suffering that will allow you to, to play the video game of your life very differently and, and, and you, you, you arrive at a very different outcome, right? I mean, it's like we're, we're, we are playing, everyone is playing the best game they've been introduced to on some level. They're, we're playing the best and most interesting game we can find, but there are better games. And, and meditation is, is a way of, of playing several games very differently. Um, but, and I mean, one analogy that might be helpful is, is, you know, mental versus physical training. Now we have like, we now in the last hundred years have a norm around physical training that is, you know, perfectly uncontroversial. Now, a hundred years ago, nobody was lifting weights. I mean, if you, if you, if you, the, the, the strong man in the circus was, was lifting weights, but to, to be lit, to, it, it would, it would, be a completely valid skeptical challenge a hundred years ago to say like, you mean to tell me you're going to just go and lift heavy objects repetitively for no, I mean, what, what, what it's the most boring thing in the world. You know, are you going to get on a, on a, a bicycle that goes nowhere and just pedal for a half hour? It's like, this is, it's just this, this synonymous with stupidity. I mean, what a waste of time, right? But now you are missing a real opportunity virtually everyone would acknowledge and certainly every doctor would acknowledge not to be doing some deliberate physical training regularly given all the possible benefits. Well, you know, I, I think we will very soon cross over where into a space where mental training specifically of this sort, I mean, I think, you know, mindfulness is really the center of, of the bullseye here. Uh, it will be uncontroversial to say that mindfulness is a good skill to learn, and and training in it re re repays the effort, and it and it generalizes to well being in all these other spaces in the same way that physical training does, and that it's good to get teach it to kids as early as possible, and that there's a continuum of expertise and attainment in this area, where there are real you know Olympians of of compassion and concentration and 
they're different than you and me because they've they have you know they may have some inborn talents but they've actually they've brought these skills to a kind of perfection right and that has great it has great consequence for them but it also is it's a reference point for us it's like when you're when you go to the gym and try to get in shape you know you, you know you're not you're not trying to win a gold medal in the olympics now or you're not you're not trying to become a, a professional bodybuilder but you have a reference point you know that this this project that you are getting some benefit from could be taken in a, in a in an extreme direction and um that cha- that 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 organizes your expectations for your own life and you can decide rationally or not how much energy you want to put in in any one of those directions um so I mean, so it is with with something like uh I'm going to take another form of meditation, something like compassion, right? Like when you think of compassion, most people are walking around with whatever level of compassion they have by accident, and they're giving no thought to whether or not they could become more compassionate than they're tending to be, or what the consequences of that might be. And they're not—they're th- certainly not thinking about compassion as a skill that's trainable, right? You know, but there is an analogous conversation to have. Like if I say to you, well, if, listen, if you can't bench press your own body weight there's a you're limited in certain ways that you know may not be relevant to you but like if i put you in another situation they're going to be hugely relevant right? like if, if you want to be a fireman right and you want to save people's lives and you can't do a single pull-up right you're unqualified right so the first thing you got to do is get in the gym and, and and be able to lift your body weight you know 10 times in a row right whatever it is there's to be some conversation to have about you're functioning in the real world in ways that are consequential. There's a similar conversation to have about compassion, right? And like, like what is your moment-to-moment response to the suffering of other people? We have a totally non-existent language around this. I mean, like, it's not even. We're not even at the point where we could aspire to have a sophisticated conversation where there's just no conversation about what it means to to view the prospects of, of mental health in this kind of open-ended way. I mean, we have a, we don't have a, what we consider sane, right? Like a, in, in, in common conversation and even in psychological science is the default state that most people live, which is they get, they, they're woken up in the morning by some stimulus that they can't recognize and there's a voice in their head chasing them out of bed and t- talking to them every second of the day until they f- struggle to fall asleep later that night and there's no alternative right you're talking to yourself i sit down here and i say oh 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 yeah, they, they left me some water um and as though there's a person in me who's not me who needs to be told about the water right i can see that the water's here right but there but there's there's a automaticity where we we talk to ourselves as though there's another person in the head and 99% of that conversation is completely unnecessary and it's the it's the substance of so much of our psychological suffering right mm-hmm. and that's that is that's a spell that can be broken and there's a lot of wisdom you know, you know unfortunately this wisdom is embedded in traditionally in in religion and an eastern religion in particular and I, so i think it needs to be lifted out into a modern secular scientific context but 
it is just a fact that there is a lot of traditional wisdom around how non-normative that default state is. And yet in the West, we haven't really figured out that what we what, what we take to be you know, normal human sanity is is so far from optimal. And um, we haven't even even begun to think about, you know, uh, an alternative to it. And that's, uh, so yeah, med- meditation is a, a very useful tool in, in uh, uh, navigating to, to a, a, an alternative. And your app you just released in the store, uh, in the iTunes and Stitch. Yeah, it's called, so, called Waking Up. Yeah, waking Up. Yeah. Well, Sam Harris, I, I wish the next two hours we could talk about the rise of extreme Islam and hallucinogenic drugs and all sorts of other There are, there are many stuff. topics that we've covered and could cover. Next time yeah, you're yeah. in town, we, I, I, we, there's so many topics to cover and there's, there's more I'd like to discuss with, on meditation even as well because I think it's extremely useful to, to have an app like yours. Uh, but anyway, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. We covered so many topics. Uh, also, I encourage people to read your, your book, Waking Up, your podcast, Making Sense, Read Lying, read Free Will, read The End of Faith, read your recent book on Islam. You've, got, you've written about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all over the place. But I mean, Watch the, your the, TED Talks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the unifying strand is that I am concerned about the power of ideas. And I mean, the difference between good ideas and bad ideas is, is the, the most important difference I have found in our world. And so I, it, I'm... Uh, and I think that I think kind of developing your own, having your own vision, having your own ideas is also important, sure. as opposed to subscribing yeah. to some other strain of ideas. Yeah, I mean, well, where they come from is less important than what you know, which survive the collision, right? And we just we want it. What we want, both within our own minds and in culture, is a system that is selecting for better and better, more powerful ideas. Right, so that's that's the uh, that's the game we're all playing, whether we think about it that way or not. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on the really, podcast. Really a pleasure. Yeah. Again, seriously, next time you're in the city, come on again because there's there, more, there more seriously are about. these other topics more I want to talk about. But but thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks, thank Sam. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.